Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the TM245 Homiletics Podcast. It's been a good morning in the Butner household. Our kids are doing school at home, and today's preschool exercise involved trying to find objects and shaving cream, uh, so kind of a fun sensory experience. But things quickly escalated, and next thing you know, my boys are making shaving cream angels on the kitchen floor. So they're getting hosed down right now while I'm up here recording a podcast for you on the preaching of the epistles in the New Testament. Our goal here is to make it easier for you to convey the content of these epistles than it is for my wife Lydia to get those boys clean right now. If you're following along, we are on PowerPoint 2.11, and I'll be covering some of the content in this PowerPoint, probably most of it, so it might be helpful to follow along. Much of the preaching that you will do from a pulpit will actually end up covering the epistles. This is partly because 21 of the 27 New Testament books are epistles, but it's also a fact that letters are already like sermons in that they have a theological foundation that they're trying to apply to a specific homiletic, we might say, situation. Uh, Most epistles, or at least their subunits, also have a big idea. So that means that in some respects, it's easier to preach an epistle than it is something like uh, one of the Gospels, or especially something like the book of Revelation or Ezekiel. Because of that, again, you will see much more preaching on the epistles, and you will probably have more experience if you were to become a pastor preaching the epistles from a pulpit. So let's talk a little bit more about epistle. An epistle simply means um, a letter. Uh, addressed to a specific community for an occasional circumstance, a specific community or audience. Sometimes it's larger than one community. Um, As I said, letters parallel sermons. Um, Typically, the authors of epistles are doing some exegesis. They're drawing on Old Testament texts, whereas you will be drawing on both Old and New Testament texts. Um, But they're doing so in order to address certain needs or issues. So if we want to understand how to preach an epistle, I have a little diagram that I think is helpful on slide three. Many of the texts that I've read explaining how to preach epistles suggest that we need to build what's known as an occasional bridge. So you have the text of the epistle pull out Romans, read chapter 3 or 4 or 5, that text was addressed to an original audience that had a historical occasion that prompted the writing of that letter. In the case of Romans, Paul is apparently trying to present the fullness of his gospel to the Christian congregation in Rome in order that they might endorse him and thereby support future missionary trips further to the West. Our occasion is different. Obviously, Paul is not trying to seek our endorsement. Rather, we are hoping to be uh, endorsed, in a sense, by Paul. If our teaching fits with the gospel that he has preached, which is now known to be spirit-inspired and incorporated into the New Testament canon. Admitting those differences, though, the hope is that a preacher can recognize overlap between the historical occasion of the Romans in the first century and our occasion as American Christians in the 21st century. We have different levels of technology. We have different 
aspects of our culture, different socioeconomic situations, and different historical circumstances with this pandemic that we're all weathering right now. But if you're going to successfully preach an epistle, like the letter to the Romans, then you have to find where the occasion of the Roman congregation fits with our occasion today. So how exactly do you do that? Well, besides the obvious seeking of parallels there, you should also seek differences. How is our occasion distinct? Naming those distinctions will allow you to recognize how it is that the epistle might be misinterpreted. In other words, if you assume that Paul is addressing your 21st century problems, then you might be guilty of eisegesis, reading something into the text that wasn't necessarily there. It's far better to do a multi-step analysis, where first you understand the historical intent of Paul, and then you ask the question whether that historical intent might illuminate anything for us today, rather than simply to jump immediately into the question of what significance we might find in the text today, which again, lends itself toward distortion. So if you find yourself with significant differences in the text, you need to ask the question whether the, uh, whether the specific didactic or teaching element of the text relates to a wide range of occasions. In other words, does the message that Paul or another epistolary author provides in a given context, does that message only apply in that context, or is it more broad? Of course, this is the subject of a pretty considerable number of theological debates. For example, when Paul writes that he does not allow a woman to speak in church, is that guidance that he's giving on a particular occasion alone, or is that guidance that is universally binding to all Christians everywhere? At the heart of that question lies much of the debate between egalitarians and complementarians, and much of the debate regarding the ordination of women. If you determine that a particular lesson only applies in that historical context, that doesn't leave you in a dead end when it comes to preaching. You can still ask what Paul's message for that context alone teaches about what God was doing in that context. And from that context, you can then extrapolate certain lessons about the character of God. For example, early in the book of Revelation, we have something like epistles brief letters written to different churches, specifically targeting their specific sins, and indicating certain outcomes that may happen if those churches do not repent. There is nothing in the text indicating that those letters applied to those individuals will automatically result in the same consequences for a church today, suffering under the same sins, or enduring faithfully in the same manner. Nevertheless, Despite not directly applying one of those letters to a contemporary church, we can still say that the message given to that church teaches us something about the character of God and about Christ and about the content of a good ethical Christian life. So, grave differences there, even in a situation where a teaching element doesn't directly relate to our context today, can still be preached. On the other hand, it may be the case that a particular epistle is addressing a specific circumstance, 
but in a manner that the teaching would apply clearly in a very broad range. For example, we might think of something like Paul's teachings on sexual ethics in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or something like Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection, which some of you will be preaching on for your Easter sermons. When we think about the content of these passages, it seems more likely that the significance and the intent of Paul here would extend across geographic and temporal eras. In other words, it would preach no matter where you are or no matter when you are. So that's what you do if there is a difference in occasion. You may have to situate the discussions in 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Corinthians 15 in a different manner. Paul didn't necessarily have some of the scientific objections to resurrection that we have today. There were certain religious objections he faced that we do not. So you'll need to modify 1 Corinthians 15, but it still applies. On the other hand, there might be certain passages that are completely similar and identical. Think of Romans 3, where Paul is talking about the universal nature of sin. In this chapter itself, it already indicates that sin is a universal reality. And so, once we understand why Paul is speaking about sin in this manner, we can simply follow his lead. We can recognize his general end and even his specific intent and can, if we so choose, use that as the identical general end and specific intent for our own sermons. Now, you don't necessarily have to do this if the historical occasion and the occasion of your church is the same. It may be that your general end can still be slightly different. Paul's apostolic authority, for example, might allow him to have a general end of criticism that's a bit stronger than you might as a brand new pastor in a church congregation that is somewhat skeptical about whether or not you'll fit. Even if the occasion of your congregation and of Paul's audience are the same, in that context you might not want to exactly follow Paul's language or terminology. So be careful there. But that's a basic outline of what you should do once you've recognized the similarities and differences between the historical occasion and your own. So what next? Well, next, the best thing to do is simply break down the argument. Most epistles put forward a clear argument. So to unpack it, all you need to do is follow several steps. First step is simply to seek out the individual propositions, the individual steps of the argument. We've been talking about Romans. We could walk through steps there. Paul in chapter 3 talks about the universal nature of sin. In chapter 4, he provides evidence that Abraham's faith is the reason for justification. In chapter 5, he goes on to explain why it is that sin and faith work. Sin binds us to Adam, which binds us to death, whereas faith binds us to Christ, who provides life and justification. Therefore, in chapter 6, he explains the Christian life as a life in which we are joined to Christ and therefore radically transformed, and so forth and so on. That's a very big picture analysis of the steps of Paul's arguments. But in each chapter, and indeed in each paragraph, 
even though those paragraphs are later constructions of translators and not in the original text. In each paragraph, you can break down the individual propositions or statements that are steps of the argument. What's the next step? Once you know what the steps of the argument are, you need to be very careful to understand how these steps relate to one another. Why is it that Paul is addressing the new Adam in Romans 5 before he pivots to an exploration of our being in Christ in Romans 6? Oftentimes, interpretation debates about Romans concern where those pivot points are. For example, those of you in historical theology know that we've been talking about perfectionism, the idea that we can be sanctified to a point of being free from sin. Much of that debate stems from the question of how Romans 7 relates to Romans 6 and Romans 8. In Romans 7, Paul describes how he continuously struggles with sin, the good that he wants to do, he cannot do. The question becomes, is this an explanation of part of the spirit-filled life of Romans 8, or is this in contrast with the spirit-filled life of Romans 8? So that Romans 7 describes Paul's life before conversion. Until we have a clear understanding of how chapter 7 and chapter 8 relate to one another as steps in this argument, we can't clearly preach Romans 7 in an accurate manner. Our decision about whether or not this refers to the life of a Christian is going to greatly affect the homiletic use of this passage that we make. So, once you've sorted out individual propositions, once you've figured out how they relate to one another, the, thir the third step is then to identify an overarching conclusion and application. Often, in a context of an epistle, the conclusion and application are already present within the text itself. This may occur in several ways. It could be that at the end of an epistle, many of these conclusions are drawn out, or it might even be named within a passage itself. Now you have options here. If the conclusion is within the passage itself, it is certainly a good idea to explain Paul's conclusion there, but you don't necessarily have to limit yourself to that conclusion. If Paul's sound theology or if Peter's theology could lead us to a different conclusion, in other words, to a different application, not to a contradictory conclusion. If that theology can lead us to a different application, then there's no reason that you cannot make that application. But if there is an application in the text, don't ignore it. You at least mention it and then move on. On the other hand, if the application is not made until later, you have the choice either of connecting your sermon to a later point in the text or else restricting yourself to a novel or new application. The reason you might do a new application is if you're preaching through the letter and much of the letter at the end summarizes the implications of the earlier theology, you don't want to gesture forward too many times or by the time you get to those later chapters, there won't be much left to say. So, preaching an epistle. Consider the historical occasion for the situation uh, of the audience to which the epistle was originally addressed. Then consider your own occasion. What are the differences? What are the similarities? And think about how that will affect 
the application. Find the argument, break it down into individual propositions, and then figure out how these propositions relate to one another, as well as what the author is trying to do with this argument. What's the conclusion? What's the application? If you can do that, then you should be in pretty good shape for preaching. Okay, a few final practical tips in terms of preaching in the epistles. One thing to keep in mind is to try and identify discrete literary units within the epistle. If our goal here is to break down an argument, then we have to be careful where in the argument we are breaking things up. Now, sometimes the simple length of an argument is going to prevent us from covering it in its entirety. Romans, as an epistle, in its entirety, is actually dedicated to making one or two overarching points. So you might consider at the beginning of a series on Romans, preaching through the entire epistle at bird's eye view, a big summary of the whole work. Something like Romans is going to take so long to preach through that you might want to come back to it again in a couple of months and I'll give a slightly different sermon again, tying the entire picture together. But then most sermons will not be able to cover the entirety of Paul's argument. Other letters, though, and here 1st and 2nd Corinthians come to mind or 1st and 2nd Timothy or even the epistle to the Hebrews, other letters will have smaller arguments and smaller points throughout. Oftentimes, it's ideal to select a complete literary unit in order to understand the intention of the historical author and its implications for the historical occasion and for today's occasion. Now here's an example of what I mean. In Philippians 2, we have the famous Christ hymn. Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, and so forth and so on. This famous hymn begins in verse 5 and concludes in verse 9, and so it might be very tempting to offer a sermon only on that passage, a good Christological sermon. However, if we pay close attention to Paul's argument, we'll see that actually chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 entirely fit together into a single argument, which means if you shrink the scope to verses 5 through 9, you're much more likely to take things out of context. At the very least, you're much more likely to be unaware of what Paul's intention here was, which could lead you astray when it comes time to make an application. One more point. The epistles are full of moral teachings, many of them. We have to ask the question, what do we do with these moral teachings? Early in the class, I suggested that in a preaching career, you should balance between orthodoxy, or right teaching on belief, orthopraxis, right actions, and orthopathy, right spiritual perception. But what do you do when you get down to orthopraxis, when you're teaching on those right actions that we are to take? Here, I will simply name four preaching strategies for use when dealing with moral teachings in the epistles. The first is that of Martin Luther. Luther would recognize that in Romans 3, which we've already discussed today, as well as in other places, it's clear that we cannot be free of sin. Therefore, when we are presented with such moral teachings as those that we find in the epistles and elsewhere, 
we will recognize that we fall short. This can instill some guilt in us, which in turn should push us through repentance to the grace of Christ. So when you preach the moral teachings of the New Testament, especially the epistles, you might use it as an opportunity to direct your, co your congregation, your audience, to Christ. That's not the only Christ-centered way of preaching these commandments. Another would be using Christ as a moral exemplar. I believe Jordan actually did a good job of this in the first sermon we had in class that feels so long ago. He explained how Jesus was the ideal friend, though we'd suggested he could unpack that a little bit more in class. A moral exemplar approach would set up the moral teachings of the New Testament, acknowledge that we cannot fulfill it, but rather than pushing the gospel in that context, instead it will illustrate how Christ does fulfill these teachings, which of course can provide an opportunity for a different way to approach the gospel, or it can be left at a theological level to explain the divinity of Christ, his moral perfection, or the fact that he is a Messiah. A third approach is that of Christian sanctification. These laws are scriptural. They do clearly explain what it is to be good, and therefore Christians seeking to be good are under some obligation to try and follow these laws, even if they will fall short. Therefore, one good way to preach the moral teachings in the epistles is simply to leave them at the level of moral teachings. It is simply to ask your congregation to try and abide by them, even while providing them grace and knowing that they will not be perfect in this goal. Finally, community. What kind of church does this call us to be? Sometimes, rather than targeting the individual, it's better to actually address the community as a whole. After all, for most of the epistles, with the exception of the pastoral ones, it was a congregation that was in view here. In fact, when it comes to moral teachings, Richard Hayes summarizes that one of the key images of ethics for the entire New Testament is that of community. Community is a fundamental concern. So when you're preaching these moral maxims, don't make it too individualistic. Be sure to also include the question of who you are as a church. Sometimes this can take the teeth off of the sermon just enough that people will be less defensive and more willing to recognize opportunities for change if it doesn't feel quite so targeted against them personally. Of course, depending upon your general end, sometimes it is important to have those teeth in a sermon. Other times it's important to give your congregation a little bit of breathing room. After all, they're coming into a sermon from many different places, spiritually and emotionally. So those are my tips for preaching the epistles. I hope they prepare you for your epistolary sermon uh, next week. Until then, be well.